0: One company is continuing its push to bring the crypto to countries around the world. Joining us now is Strike CEO Jack Mallers, the company announcing its expansion into Argentina today. Jack, it's great to have you back. This is a big deal, but do you think the government will be as receptive as El Salvador's was?
1: Yo,
2: Kelly, Happy New Year. Let's change the world. Um... (laughs) No, I don't. Listen, Kelly, I'm not a government consultant. Uh, I'm here to change the world, push our species in a direction that I think will make the world a better place. And uh, the El Salvadoran government aligned with the vision and thought Bitcoin was a useful tool um, for their citizens. The Argentine government, that's not my job. Um, I'm just... Impressed with my team, impressed with Bitcoin and the toolset that we've been allowed for with what Satoshi created and making the world a better place. We're giving the people of Argentina a monetary asset, a monetary policy, a monetary network that they can rely on and make free instant cross-border payments that subscribe to an asset and a store of wealth that is external of any government or central party intervention um, that's really pained them over the last hundred years.
0: Well, and Argentina obviously has had such a tough time with inflation. I know when I visited there about a decade ago, they basically said just use your U.S. dollars because, you know, that's a better way to do business around here. Don't even bother changing it into pesos and back. So I see the use case. And in El Salvador's case, it's not like you partnered with the government to go in there. You launched the app. It got really successful. And then they wanted to look into that. So I'm just going to be curious to see if you're successful in Argentina, if you're met with sort of similar um sort of, should we say, tacit approval by the authorities there, or if they would have any reason to say, you know what, we don't want our citizens doing business this way. Yeah,
2: so, Kelly, here, this is what I think is interesting, is that you're exactly right. The inflation that has plagued Argentina, they now, their unit of account is U.S. dollars, and demand for dollars is through the roof. In the parallel black market, at dollars worth uh, twice as much as it is according to the official rate. So they are looking to, to store their wealth in something else. Many of them use Bitcoin, but even that is too volatile for them. Um, However, uh, their ability to make payments. Kelly, this is a a cash economy. People buy houses with cash. They're not even allowed to use uh, payment networks that are denominated in dollars. The Visa network that operates on U.S. dollars does not work in Argentina. It is banned. And so for Strike, what's really interesting for us is offering them a convenient cash collateral. They like their daily spending cash collateral to be in dollars. But interfacing that cash collateral over the Bitcoin and Lightning network, making it seamless to make instant free cross-border payments. And so to the individual, if you want to hold as much Bitcoin or as little Bitcoin as you want, that is up to you. What we allow you to do is hold a dollar-like cash collateral, but then use the Bitcoin network under the hood to escrow the value to make for digital seamless payments and excuse them of this really monstrous cash-based economy
0: they're telling me i have about two minutes jack and i have about 10 minutes worth of questions so let me just try to get through this quickly is venezuela next for you
2: um everywhere is next for us Uh, The the novel thing about Bitcoin is it takes the property that makes internet companies valuable and important is that they have a target audience of all 8 billion people. It is an open global singular network. Um, The good thing about Strike is that we get to sell them money, not advertising. We're delivering one of the most viral products in human history and that's money. It's akin to like water, to live a high quality of life. And so the combination of that, we get to try and sell money to all 8 billion people, a better financial and superior financial experience. So I'm on a mission to deliver this to everyone that has a pulse on this planet.
3: Happy Bitcoin Tuesday, freaks. It's your boy, Matt O'Dell, here for Citadel Dispatch 52. Citadel Dispatch is an interactive live show about Bitcoin distributed systems, privacy, and open source software. As I went over last week, uh, Dispatch is no longer available on the TFTC podcast feed. Uh, So if you enjoy podcasts, go search Citadel Dispatch in your favorite podcast feed and subscribe there instead. Also, we have moved our live chat over to Matrix, a distributed open source protocol that allows messaging uh, to be done in an encrypted way um, from self-hosted servers around the world that are federated. That might sound complicated, but uh, it's a lot easier to use than you might expect. If you go to Citadel.chat, you can join that live chat Uh, That is not exclusive to Bitcoin Tuesdays. We have over 500 Bitcoiners in there now that are just constantly talking about uh, very important topics uh, that affect all Bitcoiners and different tips and tricks. It's a very cool little community we're building over there. So come join us. Uh, My favorite Matrix client. There's a bunch of different Matrix clients you can use uh, to chat in the room. Uh, My favorite one is Element. You can go to element.io to download it on your computer or your, or your phone. Um, Huge shout out to the freaks that are joining us in the live chat. We do appreciate you. Um, You guys make this show unique and a really big shout out to all of our supporters uh, that keep dispatch hundred percent audience funded without ads or sponsors and purely focused on actionable Bitcoin discussion. Uh, I, if, if you want to support the show, It is all being done through Bitcoin. So there are two ways you can do it. You can do it through Podcasting 2.0 apps. My favorite are Fountain Podcasts and Breeze Wallet. They operate as traditional podcasting apps uh, where you load sats up, though. You put some sats on it, you search SIDL Dispatch, and then as you're listening, you can stream sats directly to my node. The other way is through BTC Pay Server, which you can access at SIDL You can send... Funds on chain or lightning that way. I also have a paynim uh, with support for Samurai or Sparrow wallet. Uh, my pay name is Odell. It's very easy to remember. So, to all the freaks out there that continue to support the show, I really do appreciate you. Uh, I really do not want to add ads or sponsors. I think that uh, keeping this completely 100% audience funded is quite an undertaking, but it is rewarding long term. And I really do appreciate all of you that continuously support the show. So thank you. With all that said, we have a very fun, interesting topic today that I'm really looking forward to with some great guests. This is Citadel Dispatch 52. The focus is Venezuela, Latin America, and Bitcoin. Our first guest is Sultan Bitcoin. How's it going, Sultan? Yo, how you all doing? Uh, stoked for having me here. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. And our second guest is Mauricio. How's it going, Mauricio? Oh, Do we lose him? We cannot hear you. Sorry,
4: sorry. I'm back. I'm back. Unfortunately, I had accidentally <laughs> pressed the mute button. Sorry, guys. Um, very, very happy to be here and always happy to chat, Venezuela, and Bitcoin.
3: Awesome, awesome. So, I mean, I don't have... Sultan reached out to me, um, asked if I was interested in this topic. I am very interested in this topic. I very much feel like Latin America, this has been, this has been the year of Latin America entering the Bitcoin scene in a big way. Um, and I think a lot of people are underestimating uh, what the significance of that can be. But overall, I mean, you guys are both Uh, Venezuelans. I am not. Uh, This is not necessarily my area of expertise. So I'm going to be leaning on you guys to kind of lead this discussion. So with all that said, I mean, where do you want to start? Where do you think is the best place to start here?
4: Uh, Ah, there's so many places uh, that that we could take this, but I think maybe to, to set the to set the stage for for I guess broadly what, what the situation that a lot of Latin America finds itself in maybe we could speak about the the sort of history of Latin America that has had with inflation and I, I could speak to a, a, a I know of Venezuela's kind of history with inflation quite well uh, I'm not you know I, I know of the uh, the other inflationary problems that the other countries have had but I wouldn't consider myself an expert but I, I'd be happy to kind of um, you know, set the stage for what kind of led to hyperinflation in Venezuela, and 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 kind of how that kind of cor- not corner, but ushered people into into Bitcoin out of necessity. I don't know if you agree with that, uh, Ale.
5: No, com- completely, man. Uh, just uh, let's take it from there.
4: Sure. So maybe maybe to start, you know, I guess Venezuela, you know, it's maybe I'll try to kind of st- start from the beginning, but venezuela has always been a very resource rich country and very like known by most people because we were great producers of oil we had massive you know massive oil production capacity we still have the largest oil reserves in the planet uh but still it is one of the most impoverished countries in the world so a lot of people wonder how that how that happened you know how how do we go from still the country with the most sort of Uh, uh, potential resources in terms of energy how how is everybody starving and people uh you know not have enough money to to eat um and and the answer is complicated it's it's not a it's not really a simple answer um but you know i think one of the things that stood out to me as as i was growing up and and this is a problem not just for venezuela but for, for many economies that are resource rich is that once you have um, once you have a way of of you know fabricating money, whether it's by sort of yanking it out of the ground um, or printing it, like Venezuela was able to to get away with murder for a lot of years because they didn't really have to manage a a, a tight book in terms of like the money they spent and the and the, and the money they, they they collected in taxes because they always had this massive kind of oil subsidy that they could just yank out of the ground, but they got really um, you know, the, 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 problem with oil is that also, um, uh, because the country relies on oil so much and the economy relies on oil so much, whenever oil prices rally or crash that led into political turmoil as well, because every time oil prices dropped, you know, the economy suffered and we got into this, you know, everybody started pointing fingers and, um, you know, that makes it very difficult to run the country. But I think what really tripped things over the edge in Venezuela was obviously the, the political event that occurred, which was when, you know, the the sort of communist party uh, um, took over at first democratically, but slowly over time it, it started dismantling the, the the democratic institutions, which turned into sort of a full out dictatorship. Uh, and and that's what kind of led to the, the the, the the first round of people trying to look for the door and 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 causing that first bout of hyperinflation. Ale, I'll, I'll pause.
5: No, yeah, I guess this is a very interesting way to start the conversation here. And related to what Mauricio was saying, like, um, uh, you know, it's it's mostly related to what economists now call the natural resource curse, right? So. Uh, there's this famous, you know, famous words from, from a Venezuela in 1976, would, his name is, was Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso. Basically, this was the Venezuelan diplomat that in in the seventies going all the way into the eighties, he, he was the pioneer at structuring the OPEC, uh, the, the OPEC cartel, right? And the, the organization of petroleum exporting countries, um, and, and in 1976 he said that 10 years from now 20 years from now venezuelans would have would start seeing that oil would bring us ruins right and, and he called it the devil's excrement so i guess it's it's uh it, it's funny because every single time it's as venezuela has started approaching you know but nowadays uh, what what we basically experience as venezuelans was just the government trying to find other ways of financing itself. And that's how gradually the government started, you know, breaking, breaking down the rule of law that was created during the, the 30s, the 40s and 50s and 60s, that basically created what, what, what was at its time, the most stable banking system of uh, of all of Latin America, right? So eventually, to, to Mauricio's point, right? Um, Whenever that started happening, you saw how the the tissues of the system started tearing apart. And so the democratization of Venezuela started becoming the socialization, right? And so Venezuela diving into socialism and eventually dictatorship. Um, To to the point, today, right, you you need, after government started financing itself using using its, the, the Venezuelan banking system and using the savings of, of, of people. In 1983, uh, Venezuela experienced what, what we call our own Black Friday event. So essentially, uh, you know, after a huge shortage, shortage of cash, again, related to the volatility of oil prices and, and, and the international oil market, um, this Luis this, Ara uh, the Venezuelan president in the 80s, He basically devalued by over fifty percent overnight all of the Venezuelan savings by essentially forcing right and putting in place uh, country currency exchange rates in the country. So since the eighties, we started we started truly seeing our, our our currency, the Venezuelan bolivar, depreciating against the dollar because of this shortage of cash and. And, this, and and that was basically the initial stages of just, you know, to, to quickly summarize, it, bad monetary policies and administrative policies coming from different Venezuelan regimes
3: since then. So this is interesting. Um, I never really uh, thought about it from the resource-rich angle. So like the way you guys are describing it here, would you say it's like kind of similar to... Um, like what we see happen to like lottery winners or professional athletes that just, they like get a lot of money and they just don't <laughs> know how to spend it. So they just end up broke at the end of the day. Or
4: ICO companies, I would add as right. well. Um, so it, it, it's it's a similar kind of culture or, or it, because it, it creates this this sense of there is no need to be accountable, <laughs> right? Like there's always more where that came from kind of thing. And, uh, and it just doesn't, uh, you don't have an incentive to run a tight ship. Uh, and so that that sets kind of a bad culture to to start with. But I think one thing that I've, you know, one of the lessons that I've learned over the years is that people tend to think of inflation and hyperinflation as like an extension of the same thing. And I actually think they're both caused by very, very different reasons. So what I mean by that is inflation is typically an economic phenomenon, meaning, What's happening in the US right now is that the government printed, you know, 40% of extra dollars and prices of things have rocketed by more than 40%. And that's inflation. That is very much, you know, related to the extra money that was printed, right? And so what you see in the prices is simply a reflection of the new size of the money supply, right? That's just your basic inflation. It's just a math, like just a, a rational reaction to an increase in money supply hyperinflation is actually an a complete loss of faith in the system right it's not necessarily you reacting to an extra 10 or 20% of money that got printed by pricing your assets by an additional 30 to 40% right or 20% that's just proportional hyperinflation happens when you've lost complete faith in that the value of the currency that you're using uh, is, is going to hold any any of its value. So you basically proactively start getting rid of any exposure you have to that currency actively, like in a matter of time. And, and, and the other thing, just to put it in Bitcoiner terms, the higher the inflation, the higher your time preference. You cannot have low time preference or it's incredibly difficult to have a low time preference in a high inflation environment because you you're, you're trained to spend it as soon as you get it. And you're trained to think in increasingly shorter and shorter time frames because there is no ability to project anything five, six months out because inflation makes that impossible. And so it just throws society into this shorter and shorter cycles of things and and more and more uncertainty. Uh, And it gets you to the point where you, you lose faith in holding the currency, you lose faith in investing in that market locally you lose faith in your property assurances in that market. So it's basically uh, hyperinflation really hits when a large majority of the economic participants in that country see that state or that political project as a failed project. And so while I think countries like Venezuela, Turkey, uh, you know, uh, Sudan, others that are sort of in, in the, the, their entire democratic institutions are just completely out of whack, that's when you see hyperinflation. I find it personally very difficult to think that we're going to have anything close to hyperinflation in a place like Canada or the US uh, anytime soon. And that's because it's really only because the the fiat system is just a a set of dominoes, and the base domino is the US. So before the US goes into hyperinflation, we're going to have to see hyperinflation in a world of other currencies, um, like the bolivar, like the peso, because these currencies are going to get uh, sold off much before the dollar does.
3: Well, like what happens, right, is is so like if, if Venezuela has experienced hyperinflation or Argentina has experienced hyperinflation, people tend to escape to other fiat currencies first. Right. So they, they look for the stronger ones. And typically that'll be the U.S. dollar to a lesser extent, maybe the Canadian dollar. Right.
4: Completely, only the U.S. dollar. So, like, euros only really will enter the picture, and there is, if there is a full-out sanction of dollars, like what happened in Venezuela. But broadly speaking, when when currencies fail, the the the, in, the the participants inside that society rush to the dollar. It's just, it's what they know. It's what they are. It's what they pay their invoices in. It's what they do all international trade with. And so, um, an economy like, for example, Venezuela. Today is a fully dollarized economy. The only people that use Bolivares in Venezuela are the people that absolutely have to because they have no choice or they do not know any better. So, you know, and this has been the case in, in many places in Latin America. So, for example, Panama is a dollarized society, one to one peg. Ecuador, dollarized society, one to one peg. In Peru, you can legally use the dollar, one to one peg. El Salvador is a great example of a country that lost its seniorage and used one to one dollar. So we are there is already so many precedents of Latin American uh, currencies that have failed, and then the dollar has been adopted by proxy, and that is just, in my view, that is sort of a, a, a sort of currency subordination uh, in a sort of a global uh, scale because the that particular country was unable. To maintain demand for their own local currency, that they're just they couldn't instill enough trust in their own country to hold their own currency.
3: Right. I mean that makes sense to me, um, but then you also see there's another dynamic at play, right, where these these governments when when their back up back is up against the wall and they see people leaving their currency. Um, they tend to try and close the exits, right? Like in Argentina Mm -hmm. right now, it's very hard to use dollars in the traditional financial system. Like there's a, there's massive usage of, my understanding is there's massive usage of dollars in in form of cash. um, But in terms of actually trying to move it through banks and whatnot, that is being blocked actively by the government. Um, Do you, are you, are you seeing that same thing in Venezuela or are they just allowing people to to use to use dollars in, in traditional financial ways? And like how does Bitcoin enter that equation right? Because I feel yep. like it's harder to block the Bitcoin exits than it is to block the USD ones.
5: Right. So I think that I could expand on that one. And and it's pretty much related in a, in a, in a huge way to what Mauricio was saying about, you know, the, the system at some point completely falling down the cliff uh, after coming from inflation, rampant inflation to high inflation, all the way down to hyperinflation once you fall down the cliff. So uh, let me give you the boots, boots on the ground experience of 2017, pre, pre like a couple of months before hyperinflation started to kick in in, in the Venezuela economy. So um, it, it it is amazing how at, at some point after you know you're not able any longer to uh, you know like uh, uh, close some contracts with, or agreements with anyone because after a month or potentially weeks uh, the the currency that's uh, that's part of the, you know the underlying currency that's part of that agreement lost twenty to thirty percent of its value right so uh, which makes the jurisdictional system in the case of in, in this case, the Venezuelan jurisdictional system, which had completely banned right the usage of other fiat currencies, it 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 loses people lose trust in it because it stops functioning. It doesn't function efficiently, and people just can't rely any longer on that on the uh, on that jurisdictional system. So, so basically, what started happening is. After the government started financing itself by, you know, fixing forex rates and the forex market in Venezuela, that started trickling down to the banking system and the banks that were basically assigned with the power to assign dollars to businesses and tourists. Uh, so essentially, Venezuelans traveling abroad the country with this preferential exchange rate for the U.S. dollar to Bolivar rate, right? So it started at a governmental level. It grinds down to a banking system level, public banks, private banks, then it trickles down to businesses. And then at some point, the people on the ground, right, on the streets, they start noticing the people that live in the informal economy, right, that didn't own a bank account or whatever, they start noticing and they, and they say, Okay, I can no longer rely on this form of cash. What else can I do? And so, in 2017, you started seeing this very interest, interesting, trend in Venezuela, whereby uh, informal merchants, right, and informal businesses were basically forced because of the velocity of 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 you know of of of, of money and inflation and how rapid it starts increasing they were forced to open up bank accounts so that they were essentially able to uh you know re- uh, uh open up more ways for receiving and and commercializing their their, their merch because essentially it was it was almost impossible you know to just like uh uh receive cash in the morning and then by the afternoon or next day go to the supermarket and you had already lost you you know uh, the value of your uh, of your savings w- would have already depreciated so much that you were not able you, you were no, no longer able to buy the same amount of goods right So it's just a it's just a matter of speed to Mauricio's point. Speed in the economy starts increasing and you just try to become this person that is uh, uh, that you're essentially trying to look for more ways to and uh, take money and then get rid of it faster. So in 2017, I remember when at some point you were still able to, you know, transact and live in it is in the country. If you had dollars and you exchange your dollars or Bitcoin, right, to your point, Matt, you were essentially financing a lifestyle for a couple of hundreds of dollars a month, which you couldn't finance yourself with thousands or tens of thousands of dollars abroad, right? So outside of Venezuela. So... When that started happening and people on the ground started noticing, you you saw I remember telling my girlfriend that I was so worried because one dollar was already worth 30 believers in the country, and then after a couple of months, it was already you know like worth a hundred a hundred believers, two hundred believers, three hundred believers, and then hyperinflation started coming in. Then the problem here is when hyperinflation started coming in, and the Venezuelan government had banned. Uh, you know, had banned the usage of of dollars, whatever, euros, whatever, people started, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, um, essentially reverting to their family members that had already left the country. And they would try to send them money back into the country by this, uh, you know, uh, informal money transmitters that would essentially assist these people that, and businesses mainly, that would that wanted to get rid of the currency and receive essentially dollars in a US bank account abroad, or people that would travel into the country, family members that were coming to the country to visit their family, would essentially bring cash, piles of cash as, as much as they could, uh, just to bring it to, to their families. Then the thing is that in 2017, the other important thing to mention that happened is that the U.S. sanctioned the Venezuelan regime, so uh, uh, the Venezuelan government started plugging, right? Started tr- as they try to come up with ways to continue moving the economy and and treat this hyperinflation anomaly, which was, uh, you know, in part also because of not being able to access dollars within the international. But you know the global banking system, nor the euro, because they were banned by the EU as well. Uh, they just they were forced to hit the money printer harder, right? And so, what what they started doing after that was essentially plug cash into the Venezuelan economy to the point in which right now 90% of all transactions done to merchants in venezuela it's it's done it's it's dollars dude honestly like if you go to a favela or you know like a small town in venezuela right now and you want to buy you know a, a glass of of juice from a teenager that is selling use to make uh, it's selling juice on the streets just to make a living she or he doesn't want bolivars anymore it's all being priced in dollars it's so you know uh as the and unit that's of all- it,
3: that's mostly so, cash based, or are they exactly ding-
5: exactly. That's mostly that's mostly cash based, and then you also have you know certain people uh, 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 do commerce over you know like PayPal accounts or or Zelle or or Zelle payments, so like payments within the the U.S. banking system. So it's it's at a local level that the exchange is happening, but it's at a at an international level that the uh, transfer of value is happening. So. It's, it's essentially not happening within the Venezuelan banking system any longer. Now, if you look at the reports of certain firms that, uh, you know, they, they have like their own uh, statistical analysis and, and models and they're backed by the IMF to come up with, you know, like real data for the Venezuelan economy. 1.9% of all payments being done to mer- be made to merchants in Venezuela right now is being done with cryptocurrencies. If you look at the IMF standards, based on their standards, anything above the 1% threshold is considered as relevant. So it is huge. It is at a huge level, very relevant, the amount of payments that are being done uh, uh, with cryptocurrencies within the Venezuelan economy. Uh, And that just, um, you know, and if, if we take two steps back between 2017, and today, what we saw happening, Mauricio and I, and I started and I started seeing this when I went to college. My friends started doing this. I started doing this. Essentially, we just found a better way to beat, a, a, like a faster, more efficient way to beat the, you know, the the, the old informal money money transmitters that were, you know, just receiving bolivars and making payments. Uh, within within US bank accounts or Burmanian accounts or whatever outside of the country. We just found logo bitcoins, Sore Bitcoin. Now we have you know Binance speed up here. Paxful used to work in the country at its time. But we were just able to beat them at their own game by using Bitcoin as the underlying currency to essentially exchange bolivars for dollars outside of Venezuela and that will bring us to the point where Mauricio will start explaining us his whole story of how his brother started mining bitcoin in Venezuela and then when Mauricio traveled back to Venezuela from Canada he was mind blown by his brother showing him how in under an hour he was able to get him bolivars into his bank account from his computer without resorting back to you know any this of this What we call informal money transmitters
4: yeah that that you know that's a good point uh alessandro and i I think i i wanted to extend a little bit on what what matt said earlier which was uh governments make it hard for you to protect your savings uh once inflation starts hitting and and i just wanted to give maybe like a quick like a story or not a story but essentially kind of paint a picture as, as I see it, and as, as in my view, what kind of went down in Venezuela, um, so typically what happens is most governments look at their local currency exchange rate against the US dollar as essentially um, a barometer of how well the investment community or their own citizens perceive their country and what I mean by that is. If your government is doing a a great job and people want to invest in your project and they think you're going in the right direction. You don't really have an incentive to sell your local cash into dollars, if anything, you have an incentive to bring your dollars from overseas and invest them in the country. And when you do that you're effectively buying local currency with dollars, and what that does is that that elevates the price of your local currency relative to dollars so if your pr- if your government plan is great and your and your constituents are all aligned what you should see is you should see a stable currency that in fact could even become stronger or remain at a level you know of ground relative to the dollar okay if you're if you come out with a wild plan like what happened in Venezuela where Chavez's plan was literally to give free things to everybody for free everything for free for everybody the investment community understanding that money doesn't grow on trees was absolutely freaked out and they said i will not be caught dead financing you know giving everyone free everything with my money because that's the only way they're going to get the assets to give people free things is they're going to print more and they're going to debase my savings so i'm going to take my savings away from this currency and i will not be exposed to that ridiculous plan of government that will surely fail okay what the government does is they say no mr investor you are wrong our plan to give free things to everybody will work and you just haven't we you know you just haven't seen this done right and what they say and eventually they come at odds right and investors continue to sell off their local currency to buy dollars to get the money out and what this does is that this starts ramping up the rate of exchange and the government starts looking really poorly because now the, the person the, an average person needs more of the local currency to buy the same good so the government wants to prevent you know th- they do not want to look bad so instead of fixing the problem at the core what they do is they try to fix the price of certain things and they they at first they try to fix the price of a particular asset or a good and later they go in to fix the price of the exchange rate of the actual dollar um, so what I, what I wanted to say is just to your point, Matt, they will, as they see that people do not agree with the government plan and they start selling off their local currency for dollars, things that they do believe in, um, the government starts saying, you cannot do that. That is not allowed. Uh, they, they don't say, you know, we're, we're doing something wrong. Let's fix this. So you don't want to take your money out. They say you are not allowed to take your money out. And what, what that has created over the years in many Latin American uh, societies is this idea that because our governments have been so volatile over time, most wealthy people in Latin America, once they make a little bit of wealth, the first thing they do is they send it out of their local banking system, out of their local currency. And so Bitcoin is not really that different in the sense that it is just one more exit door. And to your point, when things go tough, uh, they will try to ban Bitcoin and they will try to ban Bitcoin because it's working. And that is exactly what I think is happening in Russia right now, in Turkey, in China and any other place that wants to ban Bitcoin. And what that tells me is that it's actually doing precisely what it's designed to do for its citizens. hey guys no sorry if I lost you sorry
5: hey no we're here uh, I don't know if Matt's still here though
4: no no that's fine uh, uh, yeah uh, to me it's it's uh it's really just the, the government tried to to, to to never they just want to keep their optics at all costs and it's all a big theater uh which is which is unfortunate but uh but yeah, they can't really do much. Uh once people discover Bitcoin and once people realize that they do not want to hold that asset, they will do whatever it takes to get rid of it.
5: I, I think Mac is back and as and as Matt gets back, I, I love you know reading here, you know, block we're at block seven hundred, twenty thousand, uh whatever, and then it says two thousand seven hundred and ten sats per dollar but one sat is already worth more than one Bolivar right now, right? <laughs> like like if you take into account the 14 zeros that the Venezuelan government took off the, the Bolivar, right now you need approximately like 480 trillion Bolivars just to buy a dollar in the country. So, <laughs> you, you know, fiat, fiat, fiat is an illusion of the power, Go ahead, Matt. I think we lost you.
3: Yeah, I'm back. Uh, sorry about that. Um, had a little bit of an internet issue here. Seems to be resolved. I was afraid it was going to kill the whole stream. So I'm glad that we are still live. It appears. Um, so where are we in this conversation? Don't let me don't let me hold you guys back. Uh, I know one of the big things that I wanted to touch on. Uh, just to go back a tiny bit. Is you know there was some conversation there about uh, Venezuelans using the traditional financial system to to move dollars around, whether that's Zelle or some other kind of finance app. Um, you know, Venezuela has a little bit of a unique twist on other Latin American hyperinflation stories in that it's also a sanctioned country. How do like how does like the whole like, how are people able to use apps like Zelle if if the country's under sanctions?
4: So this is a very interesting uh, nuance about Venezuela that many people don't know. And I think this nuance um, illustrates a couple of things quite well. It, it illustrates how well the Venezuelan government is able to spin propaganda to make people believe things that aren't actually true. Um, And the other piece that I think this illuminates is how strategic, uh, the flip side of that is how strategic uh, the U.S. government can be uh, on certain things. So let me me kind of explain. Venezuela is not a sanctioned country. Venezuela, there are several Venezuelan entities that are sanctioned. So the country Uh... itself is not sanctioned the people who are sanctioned are rogue government officials and the state oil company and interestingly <laughs> uh, the united states over the last three years ha- continues to be the biggest buyer of venezuelan oil um and so the the sanction narrative is really an, a, a a fabrication of the venezuelan regime um, to essentially paint the U.S. as a boogeyman that prevents their people from thriving, uh, but is actually very, very uh, misunderstood in the sense that the United States does not fully sanction the country. McDonald's is still there. Coca-Cola is still there. Uh, you know, Procter & Gamble, Oreo is still there. Um, it's really uh, a facade.
3: Gotcha, gotcha. So what's what's the deal with the... The oil purchases like can we unpack that i don't even know if it's that relevant to this conversation but i'm curious
4: so i'll, I'll caveat this with I'm, I'm not necessarily like an oil expert um what i will say is that um venezuela is is, is a unique oil producer um for a few reasons uh one so before this whole mess with chavez started there, there's actually a, a pretty tight link between the us and venezuela and and it's broadly because of a company called citgo c-i-t-g-o and you've seen the citgo gas stations throughout the u.s um citgo is actually a venezuelan company uh and citgo used to be a joint venture between the venezuelan state company and some u.s uh oil companies now um because of that the, the other interesting point there is that venezuela doesn't have refineries so venezuela actually cannot process its own gasoline so it's dependent on exporting its oil to um um yeah so so i see the comment here Sidgo is venezuelan oil if you see one we have their oil so yes he, he, <laughs> narwhal is narwhal is exactly right Sidco is venezuelan oil and there was at one point a, a sitgo ad that had pictures of Chavez and other politicians back when he was in vogue, um, which actually made me want to throw up when I saw it, uh, but, uh, but that, that did happen. And so that is uh, largely, I believe, why the link is still there. Um, I think in, in many places in politics, you will see uh, groups or entities that's, that, that, that seem to have a, a, a public sort of narrative of not being friendly uh, but in the background, they're actually, you know, never stopped doing deals with each other, um, and and I think that's very much the case uh, w- with the kind of U.S. Venezuela relationship.
3: Got it, got it. Yeah, well, you're absolutely correct that it's a common misconception because I did not realize the sanctions were specifically targeted. I thought they were more broad. I I I mean, I don't know if you guys know. I I. My understanding is the sanctions on Iran, Iran is for all their people. Yeah. I don't know if that's correct. Yeah. So, so, now.
4: so again, I'll let probably some lawyers in the room confirm but that, <laughs> is, that that is the case. You know, my understanding is that some countries like North Korea, for instance, they are right. fully sanctioned as a country. Uh, but there are others like Venezuela where the rogue uh, criminals uh which actually are elected officials ironically um are the only ones that are sanctioned the rest of the people are not and the intent here was really the 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 intent of the US was to say you know they were trying to be as explicit as possible that this was not meant to hurt the Venezuelan people only the bad people in Venezuela but of course the Venezuelan government is going to try to paint a completely different picture right and so one group was trying to say hey this is how we did it the other one was trying to say you know, completely a lie. But as you can tell, um, once any regime, whether it's Venezuela or any other, actually <laughs> this is something that is not talked about enough uh, in Venezuela, but Venezuela, so Chavez, when he came in, he the first thing he did is rewrote the constitution. The second thing he did is he dismantled every single media outlet that was against him. So in Venezuela, in the, in the four years after Chavez was elected, Ale, do you have the number but I think it's over 1,500 radio licenses were revoked?
5: I don't have the the exact number Holy but it, yeah,
4: it, it, it's
5: crazy dude. It was that was hectic, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I, I and I guess it related to what Mauricio was saying. Um uh you know, the the problem with with Venezuela and it's all related back to, you know, what we were we were just just discussing this um uh, it's, it's basically, uh, the government, uh, swallowing, e- uh, uh, you know, limitlessly the different economic apparatus and in, in parts of the industry in the country. So the problem, a huge problem with, with, uh, Venezuela and, and the bad administrative policies with it was that essentially, uh, you, you know, Chavez started expropriating, Uh, companies in in venezuela so chavez for example took uh made public the national state oil company PDVSA, right that we were just talking about that has its subsidiary or in the u.s that was it used to be a private company man i mean like over the 30s and 40s the the first main highways in germany were were built using venezuelan asphalt Right, so um, during during Chavez's presidency, over 1.5 trillion dollars in revenue uh, fell into the hands of Perevesa. and so essentially completely into the hands of the government because it, it became a public company. Then Chavez started nationalizing banks, nationalizing factories, you know. Whatever, man, you, you name it. So uh, it, it's just to say that the more the, the more control over the money supply and, uh, you know, the revenues of a certain country or whatever, the more you give to the state, the, the more greedy they will just get, man. Honestly, that's 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 part of what I lived in a, in a short summary sway. And and Venezuela, dude.
3: So, I mean, on that note, uh, so in a lot of ways, so so we see these countries, they move to dollars uh, because that is what they know. It's accessible. It's, you know, the undisputed world champion in fiat currencies. Aren't they kind of just... Are, are, are we ending up in a situation? I know Mauricio said earlier, like we shouldn't expect like a hyperinflationary event in the United States anytime soon. Um, but we are seeing, you know, the official inflation numbers are coming out at like 7%, uh, which is historically pretty high for the United States. And that that's, you know, a discounted number for all, for all intents and purposes It's probably much higher. That's the one they're willing to admit. Are we like... Is is the world putting all of their eggs in one basket, so to speak? Like is it are we just compounding risk instead of you have all these countries that mismanage their treasuries, mismanage their currencies, and then if we're all moving towards a single country's currency, um when that eventually collapses, it's gonna be way worse, no?
1: It,
4: it, it's a very, it's a very good point, Matt. Um, you know, the way the way I see this, the way I, I kind of see the the, the transition and to say, like, from one fiat to the other is, is really, um, it's hard to kind of put it to words, but it's almost a, a fiat is nothing more than a belief right like the, the 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 power of the dollar is just as good as the as your belief in that the united states will be able to manage their finances accordingly and and meet their obligations right like that is really all that backs fiat is the belief in whoever the operator is of that fiat right like uh you know the the in how you manage the issuance of that fiat relative to your reserves and and relative to like you know the the other value that you can create within your economy. Now, what what happens? What I see happens when a when a country's currency fails and it moves to say a different country is um, that country loses a tremendous amount of independence because it loses its right to do seniorage. So it it essentially is now bound by the the monetary policy that the United States has. It, it puts the US government at a massive advantage relative to other governments because it can control its monetary policy and, and others cannot. So I, it, it really, um, whether we're making the problem bigger, I mean, we're just trading one problem for another, right? Like we're, we're trading the, the, what we're basically saying is this particular group is unable to manage their books and we're going to use the currency of the group that we believe can manage their books. Um, to your point, if we start seeing um, uh, concerns or doubts start to emerge around the U.S. being able to maintain its book, then you might see people interested in other monetary instruments, and that might be Bitcoin, you know, or that might be the country that is doing things better, you know, come ten years from now or five years from now, if, if the U.S. stops, or, you know, starts creating doubts.
3: So do you um, do you th- do you think it's a valid perspective that the way we've seen dollarization happen in these other countries is the way we will see bitcoinization happen as the dollar fails? Or is it not a complete analogy?
5: I, I'll I'll let Mauricio expand further into that, but but yeah, like if, if I, I look I, I, I lift the hyper dollarization process of Venezuela and had been you know, I mined in the country back in 2013, 2015. and then I, I had some hope that more. You know, we would we would have seen more retail adoption. Although it's pretty big in in in, the, in Venezuela, and we could dive more into that. But but truly, it it went already through a hyper dollarization process, and that's what uh, eventually starts. <clears throat> you know, grind, ground, grinding down towards. Uh, hyper bitcoinization and more usage of Bitcoin uh, as people just some people start understanding Bitcoin in these countries as a more you know rapid and less costly medium of exchange to reach other local currencies and make international payments because because the other problem is okay right uh, the problem with hyper dollarization is if it's done in cash sweet but then it's it's a dollarization that will live just if if, if if the banking system of that particular country does not embrace the dollar as legal tender and does not abide to the rules and the regulations of of, of us then and, and if you're not essentially a green or or goodwill trading partner of of the us then there's there's no way to you know provide like real global experience Exposure to that dollarization and so it's just a it's just a closed door it's closed doors economy you know what i mean like uh and 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 so that's and then and then we'd have to speak about of course the problem of confiscation right uh uh england confiscated uh venezuela's gold if you don't use dollar and and if you don't have access to using dollars and the global banking system, what are you going to use other than gold? You just, you just have Bitcoin, you know what I mean? And so I'll I'll let Mauricio give
4: his take on that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good point, Matt. I think if, if you look at, you know, if I try to look at things as, as a sort of human events. And I think when you, when, when somebody thinks macro and how this happens or how that happens, I like to think of macro events as a as a combination of just individual actions. okay? and if if you look at how uh, or why people drop the Bolivar for the dollar or why somebody would drop the dollar for a Bolivar or sorry, the dollar for Bitcoin. In my view, it happens a little bit like this. And and for this, I want to give a quick story about mining in Venezuela, which I think can illuminate a lot of things about how how this transfer of knowledge happens. So. The way um, people don't find out about dollars or hyperinflation or inflation all at the same time. They do this um, by by you know living certain experiences and seeing people do certain things. So I'll give you an example. When we first started setting up mines and building and installing miners in Venezuela, we were using um, the electrical contractors that w- that came from the uh, from from residential construction, because that's what my dad used to do. And so we started calling up our electricians to help us do the the sort of electrical upgrades that we did to run the power uh, feeds to, to our miners and to set up our, our networks and to bring in our sort of internet uh, to, to, to the, our, our internet networks like our land networks and in the first time around they came they were like oh this is cool you know we were we were installing miners and building something in the time where everything else in venezuela was falling apart so naturally they were curious and they were like oh what are you doing this big installation for and we said oh it's we're going to install these machines they mine these things called bitcoin and, uh, and so the second time around, uh, we called them up for a second installation. And when they came to do the second installation, they saw that we were you know, growing and that we were installing more. And they said, hey, what is this Bitcoin thing? Where can I learn more about it? Uh, you know, can, you, can you tell me a bit more about it? And there was very little Spanish resources, but we kind of pointed them out in a few, in a few directions. And um, a few months later, we called them back for a third installation and when they uh when they came in for the third installation they said um this time i want to get paid in bitcoin and uh and they had their addresses and they were able to receive bitcoin for payment and what i'm trying to say is people emulate uh, when people see other people doing well and they're doing a certain action and that action leads them to them doing well people emulate that action so the same way these people saw us installing miners and got interested in bitcoin Other people will see other people spend and hold dollars over bolivares, and they will then start emulating that and they will benefit from it. They'll run their their math at the end of the week. And they said, holy crap, I am better off. And then they start moving on to dollars. And eventually, I think the migration to Bitcoin is actually going to be very similar to your point, Matt, because it's going to start out of necessity and governments are likely going to fight it at first. But there will be a government or, or a group in that government that says, this is inevitable. So they get behind it and they rally the population and then it becomes law. And so I I think we're going to see that that's how I picture it uh, and transitioning. But I do not, uh, I do not think that uh, that governments are going to do this without a fight. I I do think that there will be some contentious part of this journey and we just need to be ready for it.
3: I mean, you crystallize something there that I talk about a lot, which is, um which I, I think is lost on most Americans and and probably Europeans as well and Canadians and is this idea of of necessity this idea of actually realizing there is a need for something better and going out and seeking it um mm-hmm. yep right like that is that is the key right as people start to realize the need they seek out a better alternative and we basically just need to be ready with tools, resources, education uh, for people when they realize that need rather than necessarily trying to convince someone to use Bitcoin that doesn't necessarily need it.
5: I mean, a hundred percent and it's, it's, it, it happened to me that way, right? Like I died into Bitcoin because of necessity. My family lost its savings, almost all of its savings in in two thousand and eight with the great financial crisis. And uh, the only thing that allowed me as a Venezuelan after after that and the whole you know depression of the Venezuelan economy, the they completely wiped out all of our savings and local currency as well. Uh, jurisdiction doesn't work. Uh, It's only based on, you know, trust and things. Somebody nowadays it's, it's, it's been Bitcoin. So I do. uh, And and then the other thing, uh, 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 you know, in the, in the case of Venezuela that creates a need, it's like, if you, if you leave the country and you go to say Spain, whatever, right. You still have to go through this bureaucratic normal process of establishing yourself as a resident of that, of that country. And until you don't do that, you don't have access to banking. You can't have a job, you can't do anything and you continue living in the informal economy. And what I learned by that is that the best way to like <laughs> the best way to monetize the informal economy is through cryptocurrency peer-to-peer markets. And so essentially I made a living out of, you know, peer-to-peer arbitrage, by arbitrashing different, different currencies in, in in South America by using, you know, local Bitcoins or whatever. So, so, <laughs> go ahead.
3: Let's, let's talk about that a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, so I have a buddy who is only a buddy because he's a Bitcoiner and he's from Colombia. Um, by the way, this is, you know, one of the coolest aspects of being active in the Bitcoin community is that I just feel like I have friends around the world who I have not met yet in person, um, but that I can just have these these great conversations with. And he mentioned that in Colombia, the main way people are buying Bitcoin and selling Bitcoin trading is through Binance peer-to-peer marketplace, which is something that was just not even on my radar at all. Like we all know local Bitcoins, we know Paxful, but apparently Binance's (laughs) P2P market is blowing the fuck up. Do you guys yeah. have any insight on that? You hear the Latinos them.
4: giggling. You hear the Latinos <laughs> giggling.
3: Dude,
5: I have all of them honestly. Look. Um Binance peer-to-peer market. The Binance peer-to-peer marketplace started booming in South America after, you know, Sir Bitcoin packs full local bitcoins, whatever. There's so many because they introduced the first peer-to-peer marketplace that used stablecoins. In this case, dollar tether so the problem that most of this let's call them informal otcs or again the term that it's uh, you know uh generally used in the financial world and the banking and the banking world is uh informal money transmitters the problem that the crypto this cryptocurrency informal money transmitters or informal otcs had with bitcoin peer to peer marketplaces was essentially volatility Right. So it was a problem that you were charging someone, someone between one and 2% or even 3% sometimes, right, uh, to essentially receive the local currency and make a payment for them in dollars, wherever. Right. And so um, you, you made 1% to 2% on one side of the trade, and then you made 1% to 2% on the other side of the trade by selling, by selling Bitcoin to a Bitcoin buyer in another country. Right uh to access dollars in the other country. So uh or or whichever whichever currency it could be Columbia Colombian pesos or Peruvian soles or whatever. Um uh, again the problem with that was volatility. So whenever you were carrying on a trade and within a matter of hours uh Bitcoin dropped like five percent or 10% whatever, you were essentially losing all of your profits. So it was a thing about speed and liquidity in the market. as peer to peer marketplaces started started booming and and and, and being more used uh, in south america, then binance binance really understood that and they really cashed in that opportunity and and they really solved the volatility problem by essentially essentially just pegging dollar tether to a peer to peer marketplace. And so that's essentially why Binance is currently functioning as the back end for peer-to-peer trades especially being done in South America.
3: But how do the that's very interesting how do the users get tether? Are they getting bitcoin first and then they're just when they want no, to sell they're so- just holding tether or
4: no, so the, the it's basically the, the way Binance innovated, and I'll let Ale uh, confirm this because he uses these these platforms more than I do. I I have heard <laughs> anecdotally from a lot of my friends, but um, what I essentially Matt it, it it goes back to this idea of Bitcoin versus dollars, and what, what became very clear, um, or what Binance saw, uh, and and in some ways what we have seen, and in, 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 we we can get into that later, but. Venezuela in Latin America in general has a huge appetite for dollars on crypto rails. So uh, it, it's it's hard to to explain because most people in the, listening to this will have likely held dollars and and transacted in dollars and they've never had an issue sending dollars around the world. But it, it, to, to a Venezuelan to be told that you can send a dollar to Mexico, Colombia, the US, Spain, and that you don't have to go through your bank to do that most venezuelans face a world of restrictions to move dollars around most people outside of the us do in fact i remember just so that you guys know how terrible this is um my family had uh some of our dollars in a a bank account in panama as as did many other venezuelans and there was one time we were trying to pay for a surgery for one of my uh, relatives and this surgery was going to the anderson clinic in texas and they were the wire recipient. Um, I was not. We were not allowed to wire that money. Um, it took us two weeks to wire that money, and it was an emergency surgery. Um, so, just to give you the the excruciating. I don't even want to use bad words. I'm trying to limit my language, but when you're trying to move dollars outside of the U.S., you're made feel you're made to feel like a criminal, and that is unacceptable uh, in my books so when you give somebody in that part of the world a dollar on crypto rails you are literally changing the realm of opportunities that that person ever had a chance to transact with so yes bitcoin is amazing but it takes people a really long time to understand it and why it's important and how it works if It's it's much simpler to explain a dollar on crypto rails that you can send to anyone. And I think that that's why um, stablecoins are going to be such a great segue into Bitcoin. Um, and so uh, I think they're that basically
3: was- They're basically getting a lot of the benefits that Bitcoin provides without having to understand the necessarily like the monetary policy specifics.
4: Bang on.
3: But then, but still, how... How is tether entering that economy? Is it entering? Okay. It's just what's available. Or... It's
4: just what's available, and it's stable. Maybe Ali, you can take this one.
3: Do they have like? Is there? Is there? Are there places where you can just exchange cash directly for tether? Is that the oh, entry oh, point?
5: Dude. oh, dude, that's a, that's a thing now. But it did. It, it that was not the case four to five years ago, man. And so what happened? What What happened was essentially this. Look. Venezuela is still functioning as the heart, like it's the heartbeat for Latin American peer-to-peer volume, cryptocurrency peer-to-peer volume. So back in 2019, if you look at local Bitcoin's volume uh, in Venezuela, uh, it was being transacted like around 2,500 Bitcoin per week. Right now that came down to like 30 Bitcoin, sometimes it's like 40 Bitcoin. Um because, you know, you, you do have to take into account uh, the Venezuelan economy shrinking and Bitcoin going up in price, etc. cetera. Uh, so before Tether, uh, it was all Bitcoin when Tether joined the scenes. Tether was not a trusted thing within all of the of these, uh, uh, you know, again, OTC dealers, whatever. I did this for a living in Venezuela, right? So uh, essentially, at some point, After the 2017 bull run in Bitcoin, some of us, some of us cashed out and put some money within exchanges and stable coins or whatever. And that's how they, that's how really it started growing this usage and understanding of stable coins. Like, what is the stable coin thing? What can I do with it? Whatever. So the problem was that before they were, uh, you know, they became part of this peer-to-peer markets, and and right now even Paxful has USDT as well, right? Um, nobody care about that, honestly. It was mostly, it was mostly a thing that people that were trying to do trading on exchanges were getting. That's how people started getting familiar familiarized with Tether. But right now, after seeing you know the usage of stable coins evolve throughout all this past you know five years whatever whatever dude you go to play soccer with your crypto buddies uh, bitcoin buddies or whatever in Venezuela and you would see you would see people making payments you you know between each other in 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 dollar tether man and Binance purely so I guess that it's it's a mixture of the people that are early adopters and mine bitcoin early stages in you know countries with cheap electricity rates like venezuela or argentina or paraguay etc and then you have uh you have to add this whole you know mont- informal money transmitters and otc de- dealers that were digital dealing with digital assets for their daily operations as the underlying currencies And then you have the traders uh, unexperienced traders or whatever you want to call them. And and then you have and now you have the layer of, you know, businesses and day to day people that understand that, okay, I need to travel all the way to the US. I need to have access to an address in the US just to win a bank account in the US. My bank account can get frozen. I need to spend sometimes day, hours, days, if not weeks, trying to reach out to customer support at a, at my U.S. bank, right? Uh, sometimes I make a Zelle payment of $100 and my account gets frozen or blocked. And yada, 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 same story. You have to reach out to customer success from the XYZ bank in the U.S. or Panama or whatever. So it it's right now to Mauricio's point it's just a more comfortable and accessible way of moving dollars within payment rails that that, it's pretty much it. And in a digital, in a purely digital manner, right? Because you don't have to travel anywhere. You just need an email, a phone number and set up a TOTP security on your phone or whatever. And so you essentially have access to dollars and your phone. And I think that that's, that's how it started evolving. Honestly. So it,
3: it was Bitcoiners who brought it in.
5: Exactly. Right? Exactly. They already had
3: Bitcoin, so they had access to Tether, and then it spread from there.
5: And and like I'll give you another example. I have a buddy of mine that used to have this Western Union franchise right in Peru. Eventually, this dude started mining with us in Venezuela, and then he said, "Huh? So wait, I have a better way." For doing the same thing that I'm doing with Western Union, but with this local bitcoins thing that you're showing me. So why don't I try to plug that as a backend for my Western Union business, just so that I can make more money, and and, and move it faster, move it more times, you know, spin, keeps keep the wheel spinning, but at a faster pace, and just just make more profits with the same infrastructure that I have. But I'm just, I'm just opening myself an account at a, you know, at a marketplace similar to opening an account in Amazon or Mercado Libre or whatever, right? So what you're seeing in South America is an increasing trend an ever increasing trend of even traditional money remittance services and money transmitting services. Diving into digital assets because it's just cheaper, faster, quicker, better.
3: Well, I definitely feel that. Um, I appreciate the insight, guys. So, I mean, so w- with this reliance on, are, are you guys concerned? Are you guys concerned about the reliance on stable coins? Like they are pretty much all centralized. Um you know, Tether is a massive regulatory target. Do you? Or is, is that something that's on your radar? Or do you think it's overblown?
4: So I think going back to, to, to your concept or your question about, um, you know, are we trading one problem for another by letting these countries use a dollar rather than their own local currency? I think what what I see in this in, in the way people are, are behaving and the, the, the stable coins and, and the choices that they're making is essentially they're saying, Yes, you know, I may not know who's behind this tether organization, I may not know who's behind this other group that is that is managing these these other assets, but I do know what my option is. And my option is staying in my broken system, which will certainly leave me to failure and so again it's really um it, you know if you think Tether's bad like you should see the books of the venezuelan government you know what i mean and and i think that that's what what people are saying when the, the people that you see go into tether you know they don't have the greatest central banks in the world they may not have the full information to your point matt and if they did know everything they need to know they may choose to use something else but i think that they're making this decision based on what they know and i think what is uh sometimes missed by by people outside of north america or europe is how much fear there is and how much power a country has when it turns against you or your group of friends or or your peers or your industry um, and in and, and, and latin america we've seen the government expropriate our savings from the bank that's happened many times we've seen governments uh expropriate assets like factories um, houses farms so we have very shaken property assurances uh and so um so what what you see is people have have very little trust in in the tools that are at their disposal and they're willing to place blind faith almost on these options that other people are using so i i i don't i think it's basically trading one problem for the other but what i think is is important to highlight is as bad and as scary as we think some operators of these coins might be the people that are switching to these operators see way scarier boogeyman and way scarier outcomes if they don't move over to tether if that makes sense right
3: i mean ultimately everything has trade-offs right i mean i think most people wouldn't argue against the fact that using something like tether um gives you additional censorship resistant guarantee like tether has been frozen and seized but compared to something like zelle or a traditional bank wire or something it is obviously a massive improvement on that trade-off balance
4: Yeah, the the other assumption that I want to challenge there briefly is the idea that you have privacy in some of these authoritarian countries. Like, there is no privacy in Venezuela. If The Venezuelan Mm -hmm. government knows everything you do in the banking system. They have a system that knows how many times you've been to the doctor, how many cars you drive, how many pets you have, how many kids you have. Um, So the surveillance state is already here. I, I think a lot of people just don't really appreciate that.
3: Uh, I mean on that point, uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of writing and articles about um the Venezuelan government seizing Bitcoin mining operations. Mm, I was one of them. On <laughs> I was one of them. You want to talk about that at all or um sure.
4: Um so how do how do where to start? Um so as many Venezuelans uh, back in the day when when many when the first type of a group of Venezuelans got into Bitcoin, um, we uh, you know many quickly saw this connection uh, between Venezuela and subsidized electricity and our uh, strict currency control that enabled us or, or prevented us from from protecting our savings. And they saw Bitcoin and they saw mining and connected the two dots in a very similar way that China did. And we can get into that in a second. um, They started using Bitcoin to essentially extract uh, uh, an incentive that was being provided by the government by way of subsidies and essentially um, use Bitcoin to um, uh, be well better off in a system that uh, did not let you acquire dollars at the time. So a lot of people start mining Bitcoin and they start doing really well. Um, and uh, at first it was a bit secretive. People were scared. They didn't know how the government was going to react, um, but it wasn't illegal. So me, my family and I, we just got, we were so excited. We were just telling everyone that would come to us and helping them how to mine, set up facilities, uh, figure out the electrical work, and essentially uh, uh, started helping many people set up their mines. And uh, and mining starts getting quite viral in Venezuela because uh, you know you were getting I remember back in the day you were getting like three to four hundred bucks a month from a rig and minimum wage in Venezuela was about twenty bucks so people were getting like twenty times minimum wage by by just setting up a rig uh, even if it was a GPU or, or ASIC they were kind of the same revenue at the time and um, and so what happens uh, and and the, 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 the this is where the petro comes into the story and um what happens is this is happening in the middle of the ICO boom the Venezuelan government oh man this is going to be a long story but I I have to tell it so the Venezuelan government um once they once Chavez died and they started facing issues they 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 got on this trend that every year towards Christmas when when people were most upset because usually by then you know people were just mad that they didn't have money going up to Christmas to buy gifts and and the country was just in shambles. So they would they would find a way to give to get to do freebie to do giveaways. So in 2017, they they took the largest uh, electronics company uh, in the country, so like equivalent to like Venezuela and Best Buy, and they went into Best Buy and took all of their stores uh, uh, countrywide and said that these stores had had been bringing in uh, goods at uh, at speculative prices. And that the government had essentially slashed all of their prices by like 70%. And they were going to distribute them to the people uh, for Christmas. And so, of course, people lined up to get 40-inch TVs for 20 bucks. And, uh, and they absolutely raided the inventory and stock of this company. And this company uh, essentially crashed and, and seized existing. It could never recover from, from that. But the government uh, had happy voters for another week, for another few months. Um, the, the year after that, they uh, did the same thing with a big shoe company. They essentially, uh, basically, seized all their inventory, sliced like slashed it in prices, and gave it away to people. And again, you know, photo ops for people walking out with seven pairs of shoes for seven bucks. And um, obviously, as companies caught on to this, they stopped bringing inventory. And come Christmas 2000, and I believe this was 2017, uh, right around the peak of the market. Nobody had inventory. Nobody had been bringing inventory of the year because they want to be—they want to be the idiots that that were going to be giving away free Christmas gifts. And um, basically, the year was coming to an end. There was nothing to give away. And um, I, I don't really have uh, specific data for this, but I think what went down was something like this: um, Maduro is is trying to keep his crony officials happy. Crony officials are getting upset because they're looking at Christmas and they're not going to get free money. And, uh, and so they say, what are you going to do for us? And Maduro says, bring me all the importation records for what's been brought into the country this year. And there was a name that kept recurring throughout 2017 as importers uh, of shipping goods into Venezuela, and that name was Bitmain. Um, and so they dug a little bit deeper in Bitmain, and they saw that these machines literally printed do- dollars or Bitcoin. And they said, oh my god. There are machines that print dollars and they are in this country. How can we redistribute these machines to our cronies? And they devised this marvelous plan that uh, involved announcing a fake new cryptocurrency um, so that by promoting this fake new cryptocurrency, they could educate their cronies on what these mining machines look like and basically instruct them uh, that they could go uh take them from these people and then start mining dollars for themselves and so this is where the petrol push starts and if you look at the petro uh and if you look at the uh promotional materials that were done for the petrol they all revolved around mining mining equipment and they would show asics and they would show gpu rigs and you want to hear something funny the petrol was never uh <laughs> there were never any miners for the petro the petro could not be mined it's a closed network so what these uh uh petro advertisements were was in fact education campaigns for so that people could identify miners understand miners and then go seize them from the people that were legally mining in the country um right after the petro uh promotion We and many other miners around the country started seeing new strange visitors into our mining facilities Um, and they would come dressed as uh, utility people, they would come dressed as mostly utility people. Um, And uh, surely, uh, a few days later, these utility people revealed themselves as not utility people. Uh, and they started essentially harassing miners, threatening miners to, to seize equipment, threatening miners to, to shut down their facilities. Uh, and then miners essentially uh, you know, reneged and, and they were basically all the uh, miners like ourselves that did not uh, want to accept that and would not ever get in bed with that type of government. We basically rolled, like, rolled up our facilities and left. Um, but what the government did is they continued seizing machines from, from a bunch of people. Um, in fact, some of the machines that, that, that were shipped to Venezuela were actually stolen from us at the dock. And the shipping company called us to tell us that they had been stolen. And when we asked what we could do about it, um, we were told that the last person that had gone and asked about what happened uh, with their mining equipment was told never to go back to the uh, army office where they went to pose the question. So. Fast forward until today, what ended up happening is the government, uh, uh, of course, they saw something that could benefit people or themselves, and they decided to uh, help themselves, of course. Uh, they've created this entity called Sunacrip. Sunacrip is the national cryptocurrency body. Uh, of course, it is one of the sanctioned bodies. One of the few fully sanctioned bodies in Venezuela is the Sunacrip, and another fully sanctioned uh part of Venezuela is the Petro and anyone that has to do with the Petro ironically enough so Sunacrip created a national pool and it forces every Venezuelan miner to send their payouts to the government-run pool Um, and then they have to trust the government to disperse your Bitcoin back to you as a miner. so uh yeah I'll pause there but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that pool Matt
3: so I mean Uh, this is uh i i appreciate the this that's some story right there so so a couple things to unpack there first of all you said your family disbanded their mining operation and moved it out of the country you literally got the mining rigs out of the country
4: we did not we sold them to people locally that wanted to continue mining,
3: Uh, and then you can set up shop somewhere else if you want to
4: Yeah, so the 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 way out was there's obviously a lot more nuance to the way out. You know, in fact, what ended up happening was they they raided one of my brother's facilities. Uh, They threatened us to uh, you know send us uh, or or you know place charges against us. Uh, They 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 tried to threaten with all these weird, scary sounding uh, charges and allegations. Of course, legally, that's all been you know they you know we won that case. There's you know we set the record straight there's absolutely nothing wrong with what we did but at the time uh, as 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 ale will and then many other venezuelans will know like venezuela is a very lawless place so everyone's going to try to bully you into something and it's really a doggy dog right. uh, world so um yeah. basically we uh we did not play ball with with those guys at the time uh with the cronies at the time and we instead decided to take it up in court and, and clean it up that way and, and that's what
3: happened got it got it um well i mean the other i mean there was a lot there the other thing i want to unpack the petro still exists right like aren't yeah. they is it true that they're like giving it out as welfare as well like you get you get mm-hmm. if you register you get free petro or
5: yeah because essentially it's just to uh, to basically related to what maurice was saying it's it's again just like a government uh, a government-ran social program so there's like this special ID in Venezuela, which is like a uh, you know, if, if, you, if you issue yourself that ID, then you have the ability to register in the Petro app, uh, which is essentially like a national, a national wallet, so similar to like the Chivo wallet in El Salvador, but in this case, it's like you know, connected to the, the, the Venezuelan government's monetary network, so so to speak. So it's more like a, 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 a to put it into context. I, I think it's it's kind of like a national PayPal. You know what I mean? So that's like the Petro doesn't have any blockchain. You can make Petro payments with within the national app.
3: And so they don't even have a centralized. There's not even like a centralized blockchain attached to it. It's just c- completely.
5: Yeah.
4: It's a it's a, lo- it's a local shitcoin. Exactly. At right, but like to, they
3: haven't even gone the full. They have. It's not even. It's. It's not. It hasn't even hit shitcoin status, right? Like it doesn't. on no, the blockchain or.
4: You can't run a node. You cannot run a node.
3: Okay, gotcha.
5: Exactly. So, so it was suppo- It was supposed to to be launched as a federated network, and essentially the initial white paper of the uh, Petro that came out back in 2017 was a hard fork of Dash. So it was built on X11, it was supposed to be built on X11, on the X11 algorithm, right? Um, n- that never happened. And then just the Sunacrib, the Sunacrib uh, government body that Marissa was talking about, it was, it just changed the the dude that was, uh, you know, like the, the minister of, of this government body it changed in like two, t- twice or, or three times or whatever, and so plans would just would just change. It's it's mostly based on purely lobbying, you know what I mean? And 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 it it, it essentially became just like uh, the closer you got to Sunacrip, the closer you had the opportunity of being granted a permit to become. You know, like cryptocurrency exchange in Venezuela so that you could legally uh build a platform to onboard users and then, you know, receive their their bolivars. And then you could you could, you know, legally go to, to private banks or even public banks in the country and and open up a, a corporate treasury account to receive believe it is under your Venezuelan corporation. And then there's some like very but this is really sketchy level petro thing, which is like, you know, like petro, petro arbitrage traders, which is essentially people that would buy, that would buy petro at a discounted prices from, from other people because they would pay them in cash or whatever. And so you would, you would essentially be buying petros at, you know, like 70% discount or whatever. And then, and then these people's, these people would change, would either change petro for gas at gas stations because you can get you could get uh, discount rates at the at, 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 uh gas stations if you pay with the petro essentially at certain gas stations at least and so there's different well, the gas the de-
3: gas stations down there are state owned right are all of them exactly all, yes, owned? all of them, yeah yeah man of them, it, of it, them.
4: It, it, it's it's all a government sham trying to get you to use the petrol uh, and, and again it it all comes back to optics. So if you have two currencies at the same time, you can inflate the two of them and you'll have two separate rates of inflation and you won't pile on (laughs) the whole inflation onto one of them. Does that make sense?
1: It's so fucked up. it's,
4: It's all optics, bro. It's all a game of optics. And the Petro was nothing more than a tool to manipulate optics
3: but and, you keep talking about it in the past tense like it still exists right like people oh, well, are...
4: I've, I've already written it off as some bullshit token like whoever, <laughs> whoever is using it I, I can't help you if you're still using the petrol bro like you're lost like
3: but people are right
4: no i mean the only people that i would argue are using the petrol are people that are being lied to and people that are being told mis- people that are getting complete misrepresentations about what this thing does the people that are using bitcoin today or sorry the petro today are the same people that still believe in chavez's government plan so yeah. like you will still have those people they're just hopeless
5: yeah 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 like dude you can't cash bad. out of the petrol like you can't cash out of the petrol you would see petrols in your national bolivarian wallet or whatever but you can't cash out of that thing and nobody get wants to get near that thing to the are point
3: are there no like Bitcoin Petro markets or no, petro petro no Bitcoiner
4: markets? would be caught dead doing that. Like no real Bitcoiner would ever accept that. You know what I mean? Like they, they know too much. They know so much better than to accept the petrol. At least if, if anybody that's taking the petrol right now is trying to pull a fast one, thinking that they know more than someone else uh, and most likely they're going to get cut. There's a saying in Spanish that I remember oftentimes it says, if you like butter, it's been butter in Venezuela used to come in a tin can. So um, there's uh, there's a saying that says if you like eating, if you like dipping your your finger into the butter can to eat the butter, you may cut yourself when you do that. And so what that is meant to say is, if you like easy money and if you look at easy things like you will get cut. Like there is a very good chance you'll get cut because it's very risky.
3: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Too good to be true. Correct. Um, Correct. So then, the other interesting thing to unpack from your from your story is uh, the Venezuelan government mining. So you said there's a government mining pool. Presumably, that mining pool is is not a public mining pool, so it's registered in the unknown. If you look at one of the mining pool charts, um. Would you agree with the statement that the Venezuelan government is the single largest government-based mining operation that exists in the world today? Uh,
4: there's a, I don't know Turkey, but there's a very good chance.
3: Is, is Turkey mining um, Bitcoin in the government?
4: They, they have a, a pool as well, my understanding.
3: Oh, I wasn't aware of that.
4: Yeah, I believe they have a a, 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 a mining pool in Turkey.
5: Right. So if I want to provide some insight. Hit us. Like, look, look, Matt, this all brings this, all of this amazing conversation that we've had so far between the three of us, it all brings back. If you notice, if you go deep into it, to 2017, 2017 was the year of hyperinflation in Venezuela. 2017 was the year that dollarization started like ticking up in Venezuela. 2017 was the year that the Venezuelan government introduced their plans to, you know, launch a Petro. 2017 was the year when the Venezuelan regime got sanctioned by the U.S. And 2017 was the same year because of all that scene of events uh, that the Venezuelan government started, you know, seizing mining equipment you know, fr- from people that were essentially mining Bitcoin in the country because for, for a great period of time, that was like a black hole <laughs> year, dude, in, in Venezuela. And, it, you know, the government not being able to move their dollars, their euros deposited in EU bank accounts, their gold deposited in gold vaults, right, in England, their dollars deposited at Citibank in 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 the US I'm sorry so what else what else could you do to finance yourself other than using the already almost like wiped out local currency mine bitcoin with your cheap electricity rates and before you started figuring out you know as a government right like How, how am I going to buy this mining equipment? Where does this actually come from? How do I set up this? What if it was essentially trying to tap into the already existing mining infrastructure that was, that was built in the country. And so tapping into private individuals that would try to agree to go rogue to Mauricio's point and did not agree. You, your mining equipment was just seized. So.
3: It was easier I, to extort individuals exactly, or pressure exactly. individuals than start yes. from scratch.
4: Yeah, exactly. and so and one one thing that I will say that I that just to challenge the idea that Venezuelan government could be mining Bitcoin is one, they are the most inept and incompetent group of people I have ever come across. So I do not know that they even have the capacity to organize themselves to mine for their own collective good. I have a feeling that a lot of these miners were ad hoc assigned to their top cronies so that they could mine for themselves, and they would have to, and they would basically come off the payroll, right? So I think they've given a bunch of uh, generals or army this or army that, like a, a set amount of miners to sort of you know keep them happy. But I, 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 there are two things that I know to be true. One is these are very short-term oriented and and not very sort of intelligent in terms of financing. And the second one is they, I don't think they have the capacity or the resources to have invested or grown beyond the machines or the assets that they uh, extorted from people that had already done that work. Basically is they saw something that was working and they took it, but they are incapable of building something that works from scratch.
3: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, I guess in a lot of ways, probably even excluding Bitcoin, right? When when someone says like the Venezuelan government, it's really a collection of cronies, right? Rather than like some... It depends
4: on who you ask, but for sure, in my view.
3: Um. So, I mean, the story of Venezuela is really interesting, especially how it relates to Bitcoin and the broader ecosystem there, um, where it's like almost it's a story of the people getting fucked by their local uh their their local you know their local economy and then it's a story of the government getting fucked by the global economy right like uh the global financial system like the local financial system failed the individuals and then the global financial system failed the government both at the same time, and both kind of moved towards Bitcoin and the greater ecosystem.
4: Yeah, I, I would challenge this idea that the, 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 the world, the financial world failed Venezuela, I, I think Venezuela was, uh, Venezuela was responsible for their own failure. Uh, they, uh, they had, they still have all the resources to do things right. But they just chose not to, and, well, uh, I meant like
3: specifically like the gold in the UK vaults, uh, European bank accounts, stuff like that, right?
4: Yeah. And listen, at the end of the day, this this is a very difficult thing for me to answer because I'll speak very candidly, okay? Um, when you are in a country and, and you see a, a, a government literally chase a group of people out of the country and rob every opportunity that they had, take away their factories, make it impossible for them to hire people, make them unable to access financing, make them unable to buy dollars, you are essentially kicking people out of their own country. Um, And you're doing this not through democratic means, you're doing this by force um you're doing this as you're getting millions of people on the street protesting and when people go out and protest what did you do maduro went out and shot them i had friends literally and this is going to sound dramatic but i actually had friends people i knew died in protests trying to get a recount of our election that was clearly stolen when you see a group of criminals chase a group of hard-working honest individuals out of their own country and you see what they're trying to do i do not i have a really hard time even though i am a bitcoiner and even though i believe in open permissionless access to transactions i do think that there is the possibility that very very bad agents can get circumstantially a lot of power, and we as a global society should have checks and balances so that we can bring that bad agent or prevent that bad agent from causing damage in other parts of the world. And I thought as a Venezuelan, we have been going through this for 20 years, 25 years, this has been going on for or the Chinese came in in 99, that has been 23 years. 23 years, man. In 2017, that was five years ago, after we had already been going through the grind for 18 years. For the first time ever, the US government stood, stood up and said, what you are doing is wrong. The, the government of Venezuela should not be called a government. They should be called a group of terrorists. And they sanctioned them. And you know how that made me feel? Like there was a little bit of justice in the world. And of course it didn't work because they're still there. They kicked out my family. They kicked out Ale, they kicked out all of us. And they separated all of our families. They've broken our finances. They've given us a new life. Sure, in a different country, all separated. But I worry about the, the world losing its ability to, I would say without the use of force, because you can still coerce somebody by by twisting their arm financially without having to go use force. Um, but we were unable to do that. And uh, and the Venezuelan government, because they have this, this magical thing that comes from the ground that is oil, they can literally sit there and have zero popular support from their voting population, but they still have the resources to keep them all down from rising up. And they will stay that way until someone's willing to do something. Um, And we won't. So for us in Venezuela, that just means we have to write off the fucking country. And we had to leave uh, because we knew nobody was going to come in and do things right. So I I do not think that Venezuela not being able to access their gold or their dollars is necessarily all that bad. Because if they had, I don't know what would have happened. In Venezuela. Yeah, agreed. So. Uh, and I guess there at I an go. interesting
5: point there. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that. I I guess at an interesting point to bring up, uh, and sh- sh- shed some light on. Right? Is is whenever Travis President and you were, you know, a government contractor, or you did some project with the government, or even if it, it was the state oil company or whatever, right? Or or public bank, the perception at, was that you were you were doing business directly or indirectly, whatever, with the Venezuelan government, right? Which was okay. But right now to be completely honest, the perception and the vibe is that you are doing business with the most powerful families in Venezuela, which are five families, which are essentially the five families that divide between themselves. $25 25 billion dollars in revenue coming from oil that Venezuela receives every single year. So it's five billion dollars going to each one of these families and you're no longer doing business with the Venezuelan government or you're no longer being paid with the, with you know the country's money, the, the, the citizens' money or whatever, you're being paid the, the, their mentality is that you're being paid with their money. You know what I mean? So it's like so Venezuela got to it's like all the cards, honestly. They're they're all the cards, dude. And it's it's fucking crazy. It's similar to like this. Rushing all the thing or whatever. By the way, just a side note comment, Matt. I sent you via private message on a Twitter chat with Mauricio some screenshots of Crypto Lago. Crypto Lago is essentially the only cryptocurrency exchange in Venezuela that has a marketplace for petros. When you were. I send you like a screenshot of my of there. I only have a user just to peek into that. Some from night, you will see that it's it, it it only has a liquidity of twenty petros, twenty petros, twenty petros by ninety dollars. That what's what's currently more or less trading the the, the barrel of oil right now in international markets. What is that like? <laughs> Nothing, dude. <laughs> like like not even two thousand dollars, man. Right worth of liquidity and Petro's that I at a national exchange, so it's a complete failure
3: yeah, I'm gonna pull those screenshots up on screen uh shortly um before I do that, first of all, I mean obviously this whole uh, it's complete fucking tragedy what is what happened to your country um I absolutely hate to see it, but i I feel like Mauricio touched on a very interesting conversation there in terms of sanctions. Um, I mean, if Bitcoin is successful, as we expect it to be, that cat is kind of out of the bag. Like, how do you circle that? How do you circle that square? Like, there, uh, I mean, to, to protect to, the way I always looked at it is to protect a dissident or opposition or protester or refugee from exclusion from the financial system, from a dictator or an authoritarian, the the trade off there is that a dictator and authoritarian is also going to have that same type of access in terms of the global financial system. Um, and this is a topic that I think is just not often discussed. In Bitcoin yeah. land, just because it's so sensitive, yeah. How do you feel about that? Like, do you think it's a net benefit? Do you think it it, so, it ends up in a worse situation? Or
4: I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my my heartfelt answer. Um, there's one thing that I believe that I that is true, and that is that there are more good people trapped in bad regimes. Than bad people, uh, you know, that need to be uh, that that can be empowered by uh, an open currency. So I, I do think, at a base level, that this will have a net benefit to the world because I think that there are more people being treated unfairly under these wild regimes than there are than uh, there is an absolute number of bad regimes. Right? It, it's kind of similar to the to the. Uh, to the internet theory, which is, you know, if you put it out there, people are going to start spreading bad information, but they're going to be spreading good information too. And the good information is going to outnumber the bad by multiples. And so that that's kind of why that works. There are obviously trade-offs. As a, as a Bitcoiner, I, to me, it was a very, very difficult time, uh, 2017, when, when people were raving about the Petro and where, you know, in in many ways, uh, I've, I've, I I thought that the Venezuelan government was using, in some ways, Bitcoin to uh, circumvent some of the challenges that were that were posed by the sanctions and, um, and 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 so much so that, you know, a lot of people would reference the P2P volumes in, in local Bitcoins in Venezuela. And, and I always thought that that was interesting because I would look at the math and I would speak to my friends and I would try to understand who was on the other side of those trades and I I have a pretty strong inclination that the government was the one buying Bitcoin in those p2p markets with printed fiat and they were using that Bitcoin to then pay vendors internationally and so they were flooding the p2p markets with fiat to just acquire Bitcoin in exchange of worthless uh tokens in a in a in a a anonymous way
3: right that makes sense to me
4: And, and so during that time I was I was I was really struggling because I was finding a new career and a new love in Bitcoin while at the same time I th- I saw Bitcoin basically being bitcoin and and being open and permissionless and 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 I couldn't stop even if I knew that it was them I couldn't stop them from using it and I knew that by using it they were benefiting um as as much as I would love to uh, stop the Venezuelas from happening, um, I think if I knew that regardless of where in the world you are, the next time a dictatorial president comes around, you will have the tools to escape and that tool will be Bitcoin, I I think that's a win because I don't think that we'll be able to predict how humans behave. I think that we just need to arm and educate people so that they can defend themselves against a potential attack, right? So people need to be be able to fend for their own. And so um, as much as I think it's a risk that globally we might lose some some of our power to kind of whip some rogue states back in line, um, I do think that we only, um, we, we can regain that ability by all coming together and, and try to coerce potential rogue states in a different way that's not choking them out of the financial system.
3: Yeah, I mean that makes that uh, we're uh, we're on the same page on that. I mean, I mean a lot of ways. The way I tend to look at it is maybe it's a little bit different with the Venezuelan government um but the way i look at it is it kind of gives individuals the same power that that elites kind of already have in the traditional financial system anyway um yeah when there's a will there's a way when there's resources there's a way and and the elites tend to figure it out regardless of bitcoin um so to me i mean it's ob- it's a clear massive net benefit and there's no real if 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 i mean let's be absolutely clear here. Like the US government is not is not this bastion of, of good judgment and uh, reason and fairness. Uh, There's a lot of misjustice that has happened that happens in the traditional financial system that is practically run by the US government. So if you want to guarantee individuals' rights, uh, there's really no way to do it unless you guarantee everyone's rights in a properly permissionless way. So there's really no alternative. There's no alternative where bad people get blocked, but good people don't. So ultimately, you just need to build a system where no one can control it, period, and anyone can use it regardless of... Where they stand morally or ethically.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's 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 leveling the playing field, right? In many ways, it's it's making their reserve asset the same as your reserve asset, and and you have equal access and equal information to what's going on with that asset.
3: Right. Um, so, I mean, we're getting close to the two-hour point uh, where I like to try and, uh, you know, keep our discussions to. But before we do, I mean, I El Salvador has been a massive uh, topic of conversation with how they adopted legal tender um, and also just, you know, how President Bukele over there is running things. I'm curious with like your experiences, both of your experiences with Venezuela, Latin America in general. Like, how do you view the whole El Salvador movement towards Bitcoin? How do you view Bukele specifically in his regime? Like, what are your thoughts there on, on what maybe we might see over the next two years? What are your thoughts over what we've seen over the last year? Pretty curious.
5: Right. So... I mean, Mauricio and I went to El Salvador to rep- represent Lenin at, at Bitcoin, right? That, that this was recently in November. I think it, look, right. as, as a Venezuelan, right, and, and taking into consideration that regarding South America, uh, uh, Venezuela is the country with the highest percentage of, uh, of, of citizens and families, in this case, families, owning a bank account. Right. So in the case of a solid, Venezuela has like 30 million people, almost, almost a hundred percent of Venezuelan families own a bank account. So maybe your son doesn't have a bank account. Maybe your, your wife doesn't have a bank account in certain cases, but as a family, you have a bank account, right? In the case of El Salvador, it's completely different, right? So like only 1.2 or roughly 1.5, I don't recall the exact number of people on a bank account uh, in a country that has over 6 million people right over population of over 6 million people so the thing is that el salvador right if we take into account the numbers that were being provided from the venezuelan the the, the, the el salvadorian government right the government more more than 4 million salvadorans right now own uh, have have downloaded Chivo Wallet, right? So they have some sort of, uh, you know, access to the formal financial system, right? And and so I think that the powerful, the powerful side of that approach, is that El Salvador achieved in a matter of months what South America's biggest cryptocurrency exchange hasn't achieved in over nine years, like Mercado Bitcoin, right? So, so Brazil's biggest exchange and Latin America's biggest exchange has roughly over 3 million users and they, they launched it back in 2013. right? So, so, right. So I, I think that's, it is an interesting approach. This, uh, the one that El Salvador's government took cause they literally banked over 4 million people again in just like what, two months. And, and, and you know, the, the biggest, the, the biggest private cryptocurrency company of the continent wasn't able, was able, wasn't able to do that. Right. So uh, if you ask me, it's, it's a, it's an interesting way. And it's just initial stage. It's just that it's initial stages, right? Like, of course this, like we could dive into, you know, what we already discussed that this, this part of the world has volatile, volatile economies, volatile governments, governments can be thrown out or whatever, but it's more of like a political, pure political discussion. Right. So, so I guess that uh, it has positive things just like anything. It has trade-offs, uh, but it, it, it was amazing, man. Honestly, it was amazing seeing this swath of swath of Bitcoiners traveling globally in the midst of you know pandemic times or crisis times or whatever you, you whatever the term you want to use. Everybody flew there just to see what was happening, contribute to the economy, have Bitcoin discussions. How can we further help us solve their, what is actually happening in Salvador? I paid for some pupusas on the street like a dollar of pupusas using bitcoin. You you know what I mean? Like this this two teenagers that sell pupusas and coffee on the streets to make a living, they now have access to bitcoin and they have their $30 in bitcoin that was deposited to them by the Salvadoran government. So if you ask me as a Venezuelan, I would have loved a long time ago seeing my my government, right? do a similar approach right which which is the complete opposite right like they tried creating their own like look venezuela central bank is trying to look into ways to custody by themselves bitcoin and ethereum to make international payments through the central bank they even at some point evaluated, you know, like issuing a Petron, on the Ethereum blockchain, the Dash blockchain, whichever blockchain, whatever. You know what I mean, like, and and they they came back to the same conclusion that was, we can only do this at some point with Bitcoin, with like RGB, smart contracts or whatever. You know what I mean, like, but if we do that, we're just going to be we're just going to be Losing some of our power and we're going to be giving that back to the people and we're going to be doing free marketing for Bitcoin and that's not and that's a pretty much dep- At least a more democratic approach to it than issuing your own sovereign cryptocurrency that nobody knows where it lives in And that it's backed by your you know national reserves that you pretty much control by yourself whatever so if you ask me I I feel invigorated, you know, and, and I felt, you know, this this vibrant passion when I went to El Salvador just to meet other Bitcoiners coming from all over the world, just to do whatever it is that we love doing that. So I think it's a net positive approach to El Salvador's approach so far. Go ahead, Mauricio. I think you could you could expand on this very well.
4: Yeah, thank you, Alan. No, I think so. The, first off, I want to say kudos to the Lightning Labs guys. I came back from El Salvador, a absolute Lightning believer. Uh, the, it was just crazy to see it in the wild, uh, and and it's just amazing to see how the fees are basically zero. So I, I came back, a very much a Lightning believer. I, I I didn't have a chance to like be uh, interact too much with Lightning before the trip, but when I saw how people were using it, I, I it really changed my view. Um, what I will say, uh, as Venezuelans, we're very jaded by politics, um, and we've seen politics essentially look great one day, and six months later, the entire country hates you, and you're, you know, you can't be voted out, and so that all can change very quickly in terms of politics. I think it was. Uh, um, It was a very interesting move from their part. One one thing to consider is El Salvador did not give up senior rich rights by adding Bitcoin. They never had senior rich rights to begin with because they were dollarized. So it's easier in some ways for El Salvador to adopt Bitcoin than it is for someone that has their own local currency. Because by doing that, El Salvador isn't making their own currency look like crap. It's making the dollar potentially look like crap um, as, as its value inflates away against Bitcoin. So... In that sense I think it's it's very forward looking. It's 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 it looks like a genuine attempt to help the people of El Salvador because as a government you're introducing a currency that you cannot control or manipulate. So I thought that was pretty interesting. What I what I the only thing that I worry about or one of the things that I worry about is um one is this idea of Bitcoin becoming politicized. So I I don't think we should have politicians lead Bitcoin because what that, when that happens, you'll have one political party that is very pro-Bitcoin. The other one will take the natural opposing view, which is anti-Bitcoin. And I think that as the democracy kind of ebbs and flows between the two, that could hurt Bitcoin in the long term. I would love to see a fully bipartisan support for Bitcoin in, in any sort of you know house of government, because that ensures that there's not going to be this passing of the baton between the pro Bitcoin and the non-pro Bitcoin groups, so um, that that concerns me a bit. That we're try- maybe we could potentially pigeonhole Bitcoin into one side of the political group and, and and essentially not get the full benefit of having a bipartisan support on the two. Um, and the other one, which is you know, Matt going back to this sanctions uh, uh, world, the, the the El Salvador bond is a very interesting development in the sense that it will be if if it's successful or when it's successful I do believe it will be successful um it will be the first time that a sovereign country has raised debt sovereign debt outside of the rails of the traditional finance world i.e the IMF i.e the U.S controlled bond markets um I think that Right now, it sounds a bit benign when we see El Salvador raising these bonds and blah, 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 and we all like their sort of project that they're behind. But what that what quickly will follow is a every other rogue state that has been blocked out of these financial markets is going to try to do the same. And so going back to the point we had earlier around, around sanctions, I, I think there's a lot of... Um, unintended consequences that, that some of this could have that are, you know, it, it warrants a conversation.
3: That's interesting. I appreciate both your insights. Uh, I, I made a similar conclusion on the it, it's interesting that I mean, obvi- it makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, one of the first con- the first country that adopted Bitcoin as legal tender was already a dollarized country, so they didn't give up their sen- senior uh, rights. Um, which just, that just makes sense to me. Uh, the Chivo wallet concerns me. Reliance on the Chivo wallet concerns me. Um, in a lot of ways that seems, you know, very much, very similar to like the CBDC strategy or, um, if if you're going to be extreme, like the Petro strategy, but obviously it's using dollars and Bitcoin instead of some made up shit coin. Um, but there's some concern there. The, the bipartisan comment is interesting because, um, do you not agree that that might, that might, that aspect might not even matter because by the time opposition gets power, I mean, if, if the people are already accustomed to Bitcoin and using Bitcoin, it might just be completely unpalatable for anyone to kind of, pull back on that decision like i feel like it's really sticky once once they have access especially i mean it's not just bitcoin right once they have access to bitcoin and the broader ecosystem they're able to use stable coins and whatnot
4: no um, but it, it's the, pretty the hard fear... to
3: put that cat back in the bag no
4: yeah but the fear is always the charlatan politicians that'll turn this the, the 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 speech around and say that bitcoin is the cause of your hyperinflation right. Bitcoin is the reason that you're being left behind. And with their program to get you free stuff, you won't have to think about Bitcoin anymore because it's you have to work to get the Bitcoin. Whereas with their program, you'll get everything for free.
3: Right, free stuff.
4: People vote for free stuff, believe me.
3: Yeah, I feel that. Um, awesome, well, I mean, I think this discussion was absolutely fantastic. I hope the freaks agree with me. Um, we're past the two-hour point. I respect and appreciate both your time uh, coming on here and sharing with us. Um, before we wrap this up, you guys, I'd like to finish this with some final thoughts. So, uh, Sultan, final thoughts. Um,
5: his final thoughts is that um, listening to our Venice story, you need to understand that Fiat is a hard bitch to kill. It's not. <laughs> it's it's not gonna go. It's not gonna go away anytime soon. Uh, so you better keep stacking sats because you're doing the right thing by doing it. And ultimately, just be wary out there. Honestly, uh, nobody's coming to save you. And I do feel that. Um, we still haven't felt the, the true need as a, say as a global community to get into a we have to build until we die like vibe. But I think that at some point with more government pressure and et cetera, that could become a thing. Um, so keep building out there, whatever it is that you're building on top of Bitcoin and understand that education is still needed and yeah not only in the US it's it's a global thing and we need to continue like on tapping right like I'm sorry tapping into those you know there are some voices out there that need to be heard and we're not hearing them right now and we got to continue doing a better job of doing that so i'm thankful for you know approaches like the citadel citadel dispatch that help help at doing that man and i say that from you know the from the bottom of my heart as a venezuelan that for many years i just wanted to i just wanted to have voice and what gave me voice is bitcoin and
3: thank you all cheers appreciate you mauricio final thoughts
4: ah man final thoughts um ah you know I, i i i think it's easy to think about all the 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 stuff that is kind of falling apart around the world. Uh, but I, I, what I do love about Bitcoin is that it doesn't, it feels like it's the complete opposite. It feels like we're actually rebuilding the entire system from the ground up in a way that we, uh, you know, we want to see into the future. So I, I, I just think being in this industry has, has shifted my perspective into the world is ending to, we are rebuilding the world into a better place. And so I, I, uh, yeah, I just want to, uh, uh, thank you all for, 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 you know, making Bitcoin what it is today. And, and, you know, four years ago, three years ago, we, you know, I was, I was listening to these podcasts, just the same way many people are. And, and Bitcoin is so new and is so filled with opportunity that, um, I I think the best way to make sure that it goes in the direction that we want is to be involved and stay involved and to, and to always have a say, I think, one of the biggest problems with politics is we've all become so disenfranchised with politics. We always we we feel like it's it's not good enough for us to deal with. Someone else has to deal with it, and and when that happens, you get that someone else in power, and that and that is much always way worse than if you had stayed and try to try to express your view. So I would encourage everybody to to be, get involved in Bitcoin and continue defending their beliefs, so that we can play your role in, in keeping Bitcoin in the direction we all want it to be.
3: Thanks, Mauricio. Very well said. So, I just wanted to thank our guests. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all your work. Uh, It is appreciated. I wanted to thank the Freaks for joining in for another SIL Dispatch. Uh, Dispatch is, is meant to model the open source projects that we so much rely on today. And we will rely on going forward if we want this movement to be successful. And with that, it means I'm relying on, on you freaks to, to support the show, to provide feedback, to participate. All those links are available at silldispatch.com Don't hesitate to reach out. Join the chat. The link is there. Subscribe to the podcast. Um, all the archives are there. There's links to support the show using Bitcoin. At the end of the day, it's all about you guys. I think together we can truly make this world a better place. Hopefully put some of these stories behind us rather than relive them over and over again in the future. Um, thanks for joining us, guys. I really do appreciate you.
5: No, thank you for having fun. us, Matt. Thank, thank you for the opportunity to, to Cheers.
3: Until next time, I look forward to meeting you guys in person someday.
5: Farewell, my friend.
3: Cheers.
1: the gun in his eye and a blade shining no so bright there's evil in the hand there's thunder in the sky and a killer's on the bloodshot streets on oh, down in the tunnel with a deadly arise a oh, swear I saw a young boy down in the cover he was starting to foam in the heat Wherever you are and wherever you go There's always gonna be some light But I gotta get out, I gotta break it out now Before the find a cup of So we gotta make the most of our one night Together when it's over you know We'll both be so alone And night. There's always gonna be some light But I gotta get out I gotta break it out now Before the final crack of dawn So we gotta make the most of our one night Together when it's over You know, we'll both be so alone
3: Rest in peace, meatloaf. Love. love your freaks. See you next week. Stay on Stack Sets. Cheers.